Pardon, I, I thought you were that homely steno they have around here. Pardon, but you weren't looking at me. <laughs> Why, I'm Robbie. I know, and someday people will know who I am when they walk into my dressing room. I'm uh, Helen Hathaway. Oh, Helen Hathaway. Never heard of you. Don't you read your mail? Well, I'm quite busy right now. I want to be your partner. I like to meet a dame who does it. I can dance. You won't have to break your back making me look good. What makes you think you can dance? Well, three years at Sickfield and plenty of hard work besides. <laughs> you better stick with a show. Well, as far as I can go with one. You're going up. All the way up. And you can't carry Leona very far, and you know it. I can carry an elephant. <laughs> yes, but it isn't worth the trouble, is it? Oh, really, in all seriousness, I'm deadly ambitious. I've telephoned, written, until I have writer's cramp. Oh, if I didn't feel pretty sure of myself, do you think I'd have chased you the way I have? <laughs> well, Helen, you chased me. There's no argument about that. <laughs> You're listening to episode 73 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Bolero, from 1934, directed by Wesley Ruggles, is arguably the sexiest pre-code of them all. In fact, Bolero is so filthy, it's more than a bit surprising that it passed the production code office. How do we explain that? May I suggest that partial credit should go to Mae West. When Mae West swaggered onto the Paramount lot in 1932 for her screen debut, kitted out with diamonds and 25 years of experience in showbiz, men in the Hayes office wore sweat patches under their arms the size of dinner plates. May had only a supporting role in Night After Night, as I told you about in podcast episode 26, but it was a cinch that she would adapt and star in her biggest Broadway hit from 1928, Diamond Lil. Will Hayes had put Diamond Lil on the band properties list in 1930. He wasn't about to let a dirty story set in a, b- a bordello grace the screens. Hayes was so worried that he didn't think his top men in the studio's relations committee office were up to the task of safeguarding the public from Mae West. Colonel Jason Joy and his protege, Lamar Trotty, were too easily swayed by Hollywood glamour. Joy had aligned himself with producers and styled himself as protecting the studios from censorship outside the film industry. Trotty easily succumbed to the front office executives. He fell for Irving Thalberg's persuasive charm one evening as their double date turned into the midnight hours, a meeting where Irving gave him the hard sell in his office and the wives sat in a waiting room waiting for their supper. Hayes appointed James Wingate to lead the studio relations committee. He was convinced that Wingate, who had five years' experience in the New York State Censor Board and who lectured in a teacher's college, would be impervious to Hollywood glamour. Wingate would be able to put the brakes on Mae West and Paramount. The men who police sex in Hollywood were so serious about neutralizing Mae West that Wingate sent cryptograms to Will Hayes to keep his negotiations with Paramount a secret. The cloak-and-dagger approach was time-consuming and ultimately ineffective. Paramount executive producer William LeBaron simply lied about what they were doing in the studio, and then they grin-fecked 
Wingate and Hayes and promised Lady Lou bore no relation to Diamond Lil and she done him wrong. As a result, the Hayes office spent so much time wagging fingers and clutching pearls over Mae West that other pictures drew less attention. Paramount put a number of safeguards in place to disarm Hayes and Wingate when Bolero went into production in 1933. Bolero was set in the past in 1913. Censors like Wingate lacked the imagination to believe that sex might have existed in the past. Most of the action in Bolero is set in Europe. There would be no messy implications about American virtue. The film doesn't have body lyrics of a Busby Berkeley or a Mae West picture. The film only uses instrumental music. Paramount paid composer Ravel for his rights to, uh, for the rights to Bolero, allowing the studio to claim an artistic reputation for the picture. Production code censors were sometimes won over by a highbrow name. The script on the surface looks like it has very little to do with sex. All the filthy bits happen under the radar. Bolero was one of seven pictures that Carol Lombard made in 1933. The picture was released in February 1934. The picture is a time capsule of dance legends who began in vaudeville. Paramount Studio made Carol earn her $2,000 a week salary. They cast her in one picture after another without so much as a day off in between. Miriam Hopkins had originally been cast for Bolero, but she wasn't crazy about the script. Carol wanted the part and asked Miriam if she would turn it down. Carol Lombard had benefited on more than one occasion from Miriam's cast-offs. As it happened, Carol had both Bolero and It Happened One Night thrown in her lap after Miriam rejected both films. Carol chose Bolero over It Happened One Night. She told reporters years later that she never regretted the decision. I could more easily picture her dunking Clark Gable's beak in a mug of coffee than I could imagine her enduring his lecture about the fine art of dunking donuts. Capra's picture won the Oscars and gave rise to the screwball genre, but it's more of a showcase for Clark Gable than Claudette Colbert. In Bolero, it might take 26 minutes for Carol to make an entrance, but she steals the picture from the moment she arrives. Dressed in a glossy satin evening coat, cloak, cut in a narrow silhouette with fur cuffs an accordion pleated collar, a tall origami satin hat, and opera gloves, she refrains from pointing out what a dope George Raft is when he mistakes her for a stenographer. Pat O'Brien had made the same mistake during a scene in Virtue from 1932. Carol Lombard could fill volumes with what men don't know. Carol plays along. Have you been two-timing the lady? She asks when he starts dictating a letter. Carol delicately points out that where, where he went wrong. He didn't look at her. Viewers can see he was too busy looking in the mirror at himself. Left unsaid is that stenographers don't have the resources to kit themselves out in head-to-toe satin. She asks if he reads his mail. From the start, Carol's Helen Hathaway tells George and the audience that she knows the score. 
She wants to be his partner. She knows he's going straight to the top. The upside for him is that he won't have to break his back making her look good. Raph's character, Raoul, gives her the brush off, saying that any dame would want to be his partner. Then he asks why she thinks she can dance. Carol responds that she spent three years dancing with Ziegfeld. She's a quarine, which is the top-class finishing school for Sassmouth Dames. They're interrupted by William Frawley, who's playing Raph's brother and manager, Mike. He carries a message that Lambie Pie is not going on tonight. She needs a treatment quick. Treatment seems to be a Hayes office colloquialism for dancing between the sheets. Carol smirks and fold her arms. Raft connects the dots for how much work he puts in with his current partner and issues his caveat. Helen wouldn't get rich on what he would pay. He doesn't yet realize that when a dame tells you she's deadly ambitious, she already has a plan. Gently still, Carol points out that there are other ways to get rich. Carol spells it out. Leona, his current dance partner, gets a lot of attention from men. She'll make it work for her. Pick the best one and cash him. There's something about the way Carol pronounces cash with a flat A that is textbook phonetics for Sassmouth Dames. Raph looks away when he replies that he pities the poor guy who falls for you. Every single woman in the audience would make a bet to dine on Carol Lombard's opera gloves if George Raft isn't that guy before the fade out. The next scene cuts to the audition Raft included as part of their deal. He wants to make sure she can dance. Woody got on under that dress, he asks. Enough, Carol replies, unfazed. Carol unzips without missing a beat. As a pre-code, Bolero is obligated to include women in their lingerie. Like most of Travis Banton's designs for Carol in this picture, though, the foundation garments are more contemporary than fashions leading up to the First World War. Carol doesn't wear one bra in the picture, nor any petticoats or bloomers. Carol's necklines are cut in low v-neck spaghetti strap frocks, which were not exactly of the late Edwardian period. Does anyone, though, want to see Carol Lombard button up to her throat in lace or organza? No. Anyway, Carol strips off to dance more freely in her smalls, a short satin chemise with tiny straps, garters, and stockings. They do this little number that's mostly just strutting in tandem around the room, but they are adorable, like two jazz babies on a Saturday night. The music is a honky-tonk number that could be the soundtrack for any Double Bill Warner's production put out in this period. After they stretch their limbs around the room a few times, Frawley interrupts again, asking about the next engagement, followed by the soon-to-be ex-partner Leona, played by Frances Drake. Lambie Pie looks like she's off to meet Eliza Doolittle at the races in a picture hat, a tiered ruffle-front blouse, and long wool skirt. She looks so old-fashioned standing next to Carol, who's dressed in a sleek, low-cut monochrome gown with a starched white collar and cuffs, and a smart hat pulled low over one eye in the Empress Eugenie style that Adrian made all the rage for the 1930s. 
Carol's a dame who plays on the level. So she tries to get Raph to be reasonable when he breaks up with his former partner. She tells him that she supposes she can someday look forward to the same exit. But Raph's character doesn't have enough sense or empathy to reassure her on the contrary. When they get to London to perform, Carol wears a plaid day frock and a capelet that is Bloomsbury sewn in every stitch. Again, her frock is straight and narrow. It's a very unforgiving cut unless you happen to be a willowy goddess who lives on Coca-Cola and cigarettes. Raft squeezes an oath out of Carol to close the door on him if he ever weakens and falls for her. He underestimates her still. Enter romantic complication by Ray Milland and a, br- a bushy mustache courtesy of Wally Westmore. Milland fell like a ton of bricks for Carol just like every other man in her orbit. He plays Lord Robert Corey and waits five minutes before making a marriage proposal. But what about Raft? In the meantime, he wants to open his own club in Paris, and they rehearse a big bolero number together with Carol, pretending he's not in love with her. In the biggest tease of all, we don't get to see their bolero until the very end of the picture. Instead, Raft uses a publicity stunt about not dancing again until after the war. His crass showbiz grandstanding, rather than the patriotic sentiment she thought it was when he pledged to fight for Belgium, turns Carol's stomach. When Carol learns his true colors, her disapproval should make him burn red with shame. She walks out without looking back and marries Ray Milland. Raft is a fake, she tells him. He's a man without honor before he reaches the trenches. Carol's Helen Hathaway is one of many characters she played with a gift for moving on. She's no Garbo or Dietrich who will suffer for a man, especially the wrong man. There was no doom in her romantic stars on screen. Carol Lombard played resilient, pragmatic, modern women who just decide to hold their own code above some man. If her fella turns out to be unworthy, as he was in virtue, no man of her own, 20th century, swing high, swing low, and many others, Carol walked out the door. Love is grand, but no gal should lose her head and stick with a heel. Their bolero is totally worth the wait. Raft had returned from war with a bum ticker and wheezy lungs from the mustard gas. Carol has a great wardrobe and an adoring husband and turns up at Shea Rowell to see the long overdue bolero that Raft stages with Sally Rand as Annette. When Sally arrives worse for the wear on a bender, will Carol be a sport and take her place? Will she? Carol's dress has no embellishments. Travis Banton has the simplest lines in a white bias-cut gown, cut to Carol's sternum and all the way up her thigh. This is a gown that says everything about the era. It's as good as Carol dancing naked, as Raff had suggested for the ideal when they first strutted like Bowery cuties on a Saturday night. 
Raft is her monochrome complement in a glossy black patent leather hair and a flamenco-looking blouse that covers up half his throat. People always refer to Depression-era dance numbers as a stand-in for sex, such as with the otherwise chaste Rogers and Astaire pictures. But in Bolero, there's no stand-in. It is sex on the dance floor. Celebrated dancers Velaz and Yolanda step in for the long shots, but they weren't really necessary save for one move when Raft twirls Carol with only one hand under her waist. The stage is a large drum. Behind them, a group of black men pound on drums, and an orchestra is set off to the side. The whole time, George Raft keeps his eyes locked on Carol, and his eyes mean business. Raft's smoldering gaze all but burns the straps off Carol's dress. Their hips sway in unison. They collide and bounce each o- off each other. They glide across the floor. Carol's decolletage heaves. Raft stands behind Carol. His hands travel the length of Carol's torso and rest upon her breasts. Is he grinding into her ass? I think so. At one point, Raft sniffs her arm, shakes his head, and swoons. He flings her as though he might onto a bed of down pillows. For the big finish, Carol collapses on her back on the floor. George gets on top of her, stretched out, and they pant and gasp together for breath in a joint climax. The audience breaks into applause, and one presumes to light a cigarette. Backstage, George Raff's heart couldn't take it. He collapses and dies. I'm sure many men would pay the ultimate price to have sex with Carol Lombard as part of the bargain. George and Carol's steamy turns around the dance floor extended into the bedroom, off screen. George, like every other man, was in love with Carol. He felt, though, that he had nothing to offer since his long-estranged wife, Gracie, refused to divorce him and give up her 10% of his earnings. A reporter once asked Carol Lombard to name the greatest lover in Hollywood. When she replied, George Raft, she noticed the news hound's confusion, and then she added, or did you just mean on the screen? Carol had a gift for pranks, and that included her paramours. When Bolero rapped, she sent George Raft a present. Inside a large box wrapped with a bow was a series of smaller boxes. The last box contained a ham with Raft's picture on top. You may recall that she sent the same gag gift to Clark Gable after they finished No Man of Her Own. She also left Raft speechless one day in her dressing room when he learned that she wasn't a natural blonde. Starkers, she held a conversation with George while she mixed up a peroxide solution, took a wad of cotton, and, in his words, applied it over her honey pot. She told him, relax, Georgie, I'm just matching my collar and cuffs. In another off-screen gag at the time of Bolero, she went to visit Mac Gray, George Raff's man Friday for decades, in the hospital. He was in for a hernia operation. 
Carol asked him about the Yiddish word for hernia, which Mac told her was killa. Tickled by the news, she nicknamed him Killer, and it stuck. One day, she sent men carrying toy guns to Mac's hospital room, explaining to staff that they were there to protect Killer from a rival gang's hit. They needed a tip on Carol's cure-all sense of humor. It made Mac Gray love her more, as every man did. Bolero is based on the life story of ballroom dancer Morris Mouvet, an internationally celebrated guy who Carol saw when she was a regular in the Coconut Grove nightclub. Yet Bolero includes scenes that could be taken straight from George Raff's life story. In the picture, George's character sips a coffee in a stylish cafe, poised and smoldering, impeccably dressed. He looks around the room and surveys women who want to dance or something more intimate. The tea room scene has sex on the back burner, percolating on slow drip like Raff's coffee. If you know Raff's biography, you understand the reference when he's in that Paris cafe and that women who went to tea rooms in the afternoon were interested in more than a twirl around the dance floor. When George Raft was 17 years old, he worked in two afternoon tea rooms in New York City. George would slick back his jet black hair with Vaseline to achieve what was known as the patent leather look. His clothes were form-fitting and stylish. He worked with men such as Rudy Valentino, although Raft said the men were kept busy and they didn't have much time for small talk. The tea rooms were dimly lit and well-furnished, Women were the clientele, housewives, sex workers, lonely hearts, and dowagers. A hostess sat patrons at a table and asked if she wanted tea or coffee. Then ladies selected from a menu, only it wasn't a list of cakes, pastry, or cucumber sandwiches. Women ordered one of the male taxi dancers who sat across the room. The hostess fielded the women's selection. The lady at table X wants you, she would say. From there, a more intimate meeting might be arranged. George reported that the male dancers were always told who to dance with. They never asked a woman to dance unbidden. George worked the first part of the afternoon in Churchill's Tea Room, where he was paid $2 plus the tips he earned from women. Then, at 3 o'clock, he went to the Sunken Galleries, a tea room located in 95th Street, where he danced until after 5. George danced almost around the clock in his youth. After the tea rooms, he danced in vaudeville in the evening, and then from midnight until dawn, he danced in Texas Guinan's nightclubs. George noted that Guinan's policy was the customer was always right. It was fairly common for society dames to become bold after a few drinks and request private time with George. Guinan would field the offers. She would say to Raph, so-and-so wants to take you home with her. The rich women arranged sex with George and later behaved as though they never met when they returned to the club. He resented it. He wanted sex by choice, not by the order of a rich dame. George encountered jealous women along with the ambivalent when he was dancing. He once had a dance partner become so enraged when she caught George dancing with another woman, which was his job after all. 
the jealous gal buried a hat pin in his chest. Then she became hysterical and begged forgiveness. The incident could have proven fatal if the hat pin had been off by an inch. It taught George a valuable lesson about the passions he inflamed on the dance floor. I half expected Francis Drake's character, Leona and Bolero, to copy the scene. As a young man, dancing and sex became inextricably linked for George Raft. Every day he had sex with different women, often more than one in a day. He characterized his own blend of dancing as heavily informed by his bedroom prowess. He said, I could have been the first X-rated dancer. I was very erotic. I used to caress myself as I danced. I never felt I was a great dancer. I was more of a stylist, unique. I was never a Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly, but I was sensuous, at least for those days. During one performance with a partner backed by a live band, George began a full body quiver. He shook and trembled all over. The theater manager told him afterwards that his dance was indecent. But this was showbiz. The stage manager then advised that the quiver was inappropriate for the matinee because children were present. He should save it for the evening show. Women in the audience loved his sexy trembling. Oh man, the rhythm you got, they would tell him. George told his biographer, later when I made pictures like Bolero, I used the same sexy movements. In our dance act, Elsie used to smile at the audience, but I was told to look directly at her and not to smile. That made it sultry. That no smile, deadpan expression had the same effect when I used it in movies. When George wasn't dancing, he went to black clubs uptown to watch the best dancers and the latest steps. He stole them outright and became a sensation downtown. Mac Gray confided, hand on his heart, that George maintained the bedroom athletics from his youth after he became a star in Hollywood. Two women a day, year in, year out, was the norm for George, on top of a busy studio schedule. When he had a break in his schedule, it was the typical thing for him to have three women in a day. Mac tells the legend of the night of eight showgirls, each who decided they couldn't leave George sleeping in a party uh, in the next room. Unlike other men in Hollywood like Errol Flynn, John Barrymore, or wannabe playboys like Dick Powell or Mickey Rooney, George was the soul of discretion. Bolero showcases Raft's talent. He was always best on screen when he played characters who scrambled for the top, who wore every dollar they earned on their back. Clothes were as important to George Raft as they were to sassmouth dames who longed for sartorial evidence of a better life. In Bolero, he becomes a taxi dancer in Paris that could be one of those tea rooms from his youth in New York. From their table, women watch him with hungry eyes in the scene. They are gasping for it. George takes it in stride. At one point, he takes two friends for a separate spin on the dance floor. The matrons have lost their waistline. They are old enough to be his mother, but they are starved for a man's touch. 
Pre-code pictures were honest about women's sexuality. Women kept desire alive, even when the world tells them they should be past it. Raft is ever the gentleman. He bends towards the older ladies. He slides the table in and out for them. He never resorts to anything crude like rolling his eyes or making fun of them or cringing, as I can picture so many other actors doing. George holds them very close and firmly on the dance floor. He takes them in a romantic embrace around the dance floor and back in time. By the time he returns them to the table, 20 years have melted away. One matron tips in coin, but her friend puts a folded banknote in his hand. He was worth it and then some. Valero includes a nice bit of business with George's coffee pots. They change to reflect his success. In the Hoboken Beer Garden, he pours black coffee from a squat tin pot that is a cafeteria staple. In the Paris Cafe, he grabs a wooden handle from a continental slender pot. In London, he holds his cup under a sterling silver service. Raff was teetotal and would have poured java in the clubs, especially during the years he made his living leading women around the dance floor. Sally Rand is billed third for, for Bolero. She'd capped off a busy year when she filmed Bolero at the end of 1933. Booked for the Chicago Fair, evangelist Amy Semple McPherson objected to Sally Rand sharing the bill. She could not share the bill with a licentious fan dancer. Sally was arrested four times in a single day during her contract with the Chicago Fair. Policemen then swore in court they saw her appear nude on stage when she performed her fan dance. The truth is that Sally took a long time to prepare her body for the stage. She applied a thick white body paint topped with a translucent sealant and then a thick layer of cold cream. She also wore net pants and a net bralette that were applied with an adhesive. Sally never appeared in the altogether on stage. And her fans were so artfully displayed over her body that she remained covered as she moved. A Protestant minister from rural Kansas had traveled to the Chicago Fair to see Sally. Reverend Fred Smith's description of Sally's fan dance likens her to other innovators in dance, such as Pavlova or Duncan. Sally's dance was anything but sinful. The Reverend noted, quote, she was a vision of loveliness. He gave a thoughtful analysis of her performance. Her fans were geometry come alive. It was a study of two triangles as related to curvature. Sally's trial in Chicago dragged on. While it lasted, she read copy that dragged her name through the mud. Reporters wrote snide commentary about Sally, how she seemed like a manicurist that read the first 12 of the 1,200 pages of Anthony Adverse. Headlines called her a harlot, corrupting the fine morals of the Midwest. The prosecutor told the jury that if they did not find her guilty, society would fall back into paganism and all social virtues would disappear. 
Even after Sally demonstrated some of her steps in court, the only thing she revealed was one knee. The jury brought in a guilty verdict. The judge handed down a one-year sentence and $250 fine. Sally was outraged and made statements to the press as such. In a town where gangsters and bootleggers cavorted in business as usual on suspended sentences, they were going to make an artist spend a year in jail? Sally advised all painters, sculptors, and artists to give up right away. Sally Rand told reporters that she was used as a political pawn by the sanctimonious mayor of Chicago. Sally won on appeal, which then reduced uh, the sentence to 10 days, but she rejected that and held out until she eventually won her freedom. After the tyrannical moralists harassed Sally in Chicago, she went to Broadway. In an interesting twist, she was booked in the Paramount Theater, and Amy Semple McPherson had an engagement at the Capitol Theater at the same time. Both women were paid $5,000 a week and were due to run for six weeks. Amy's show, though, closed after one week. Apparently, New Yorkers had no desire to listen to a woman's life story when all the juicy bits about affairs and divorce were left out. Sally's show, by contrast, brought in $52,000 a week. She earned every bit of her salary. She had to spend much of it on legal expenses. She had to pay for bails and, and bail bondsmen, attorneys, judges, filing motions. Sally was forced to know to the letter the law about obscenity and probably knew as much as a law graduate. Hollywood, though, came calling, most likely to take advantage of all the publicity she had generated with the Chicago trial, the New York run, and the ongoing feud with McPherson. Sally Rand said she had hoped to follow in Mae West's hip steps and move from the stage to cinema stardom. Sally's first attempt to break into pictures was jinxed by the Wall Street crash in 1929. Although she was initially dismayed that her part in Bolero was small, she felt it was similar to the film debut that launched Mae West in Hollywood, which I talked about in episode 26 on Night After Night. Sally's contract with Paramount was only for a few days on set. The studio paid her $20,000, which was good money. During the shoot for her fan dance, Paramount closed the set. No less than 73 front office executives arrived on set who claimed to be an assistant director or a producer on the picture. George Raft was quoted as saying, if all the mugs who tried to get in here were laid end to end, it would serve them right. Ultimately, Sally was disappointed in the picture because she felt limited to dancing rather than being able to show off her dramatic talents. Despite Sally's misgivings, she makes the most of her limited screen time. We're fortunate to have her fan dance captured for posterity. I'm also very taken with her performance as a down-and-out entertainer at the end of the war. Her clothes are at the edge of shabby. All the chic has been wrung out of them long ago. 
where before when she did her fan dance, she was light, graceful, and glided across the room like a ballerina. Now, after the war, her character Annette is slow, uncertain, and shaky. She needs a bracer or two, quick belts, to appear nonchalant when she catches Raoul and his brother in the audience one night. Sally's Annette is one step away from the bottom. She looks like she hasn't had a decent meal since the war began. Annette's heavy costume jewelry may be the only thing that tethers her to this world. Raoul, though, can't see this. He doesn't see that she has disaster waiting to spring from her soggy curls. Throughout the picture, he views women for what they can do for him. Only Raoul is surprised when Annette shows up late, steaming drunk, and passes out before the curtain. After she finished Bolero, Sally had hoped to settle into Hollywood and wait for the right project, but she didn't have quite the nest egg she hoped. She signed for a 40-week vaudeville tour for her fan dance, which gave her the money she needed, although she never really made that sort of transition to Hollywood. Bolero has plenty of sex. It also has a bit of violence in the backstage arena. In Ray Milan's memoir, he recalls how Metro sent him to a speech therapist to lose his British accent, and then they dropped his option. He was flat broke and chanced his arm by hanging out at a cafe next to Paramount Studio. It was either that or a job with Shell Oil and goodbye to his acting career. He eventually ran into a Paramount casting director, Joe Egley. He was in a bind. Joe was looking for someone to play an English officer in a picture, he said. The actor cast for the part was stabbed the night before by his boyfriend and couldn't do the picture. Joe Egley took Ray Milan inside the gates and introduced him to the director, Wesley Ruggles. The director asked if he could play an English officer. Ray admitted he was English. Ray was cast for 300 a week with two weeks guaranteed. He was asked to bring his own wardrobe of white tie and tails. Ray didn't even have the price of car fare in his pocket to go home and had to ring a friend for a lift. Then he reached out to his gang, which consisted mostly of unemployed actors, for help. John Carradine promised to loan Ray a pair of white gloves in case he needed them. Another actor gave Ray a lift to the studio. Ray noted there was no jealousy or petty feelings. One of the shirtless among them had a job, and everyone rallied. On set, Ray was, like most men in her orbit, totally smitten with Carol Lombard. Her style, grace, and good humor were unmatched in the film colony. Ray recounted a blow-up between producer Benjamin Glazer and George Raft. The script had originally called for a scene where Raff's character organized a publicity stunt at his mother's grave. It was meant to stage a photo shoot where he took a solemn oath on her grave. Raft flat out refused to do the scene. He was a man who navigated a moral compass for his characters that aligned with his own. He was no rat. His mother was alive, he adored her, and he wasn't going to play a rat. Ben Glazer turned up the volume and insisted that Raft would play the scene as written. 
the strong-arm tactic went over like red rag to a bull. George Raft punched Glazer in the nose, and all hell broke loose. Ray Milan was shocked. He said hitting a producer in those days was like biting the left hand of God. Glazer fell to the floor. Raft stormed out. Production was halted for the day. Ray Milan noted that it was one of the few times he saw Wes Ruggles smile. The fisticuffs turned out to be a boon for Milan, who gained an extra week's salary from the delays while Carol brokered the peace between Glazer and Raft, and the scene was eventually deleted from the shooting script. Ray Milan gained an additional day for reshoots when it was discovered that the 20-year-old bedroom slippers that William Frawley took to wearing while he filmed scenes were visible on the screen. During the day of reshoots, casting director Joe Egley asked Ray if he wanted to play a Russian pimp in Carol's next picture. Ray stayed in Paramount for the next 21 years. Thanks so much for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Screwball, The Life of Carol Lombard by Larry Swindell. George Raft by Louis Yablonsky. Barefoot to the Chin, The Fantastic Life of Sally Rand by Jim Lowe. Wide-Eyed in Babylon, an autobiography of Ray Milland. The Dame and the Kimono, Hollywood Censorship and the Production Code, by Leonard J. Leff and Gerald L. Simmons. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 74 when I talk about Eva Gabor in Paris Model from 1953.